0: I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. on the lever never say never keep hunting for the treasure give me a measure for measure as the bar bill says some rise by sin and some by virtue fall is the glass half full or do we drink it all Market spend sliding three weeks straight. Did we miss the bottom bounce? Are we a month too late? Did we miss the signs? Did we seal our fate? Did we buy too early, chasing what once looked great? Did we get too greedy? Were we chasing dreams? Lost in crypto's maze or running after memes? Or did we stay focused, avoiding the hocus pocus? Sticking to the fundamentals, not letting FOMO choke us. On top of our game, taking everything in stride. base beat, bumping, kicking back in our ride. Players like us know these things take time. Rising rates and inflation take a while to unwind. That's why we stay patient, stay cool under duress. That's how we ride these rails on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. Another choppy week in the capital markets and another week of losses for the Dow and the S&P 500 if that's how you keep score. The Dow ended the week down 0.13% for the week, small losses, but its third negative week in a row, and that's the first time we've seen that since September. The S&P 500 shed a little over a quarter of a percent for the week, its second negative week in a row. The Nasdaq, that was up a pinch, rising about 0.6% on the week. As stocks lid, Treasury yields popped. Yields on the 10-year and 2-year U.S. Treasury bonds hit levels we haven't seen since November. And we got a 5 handle out there. The yield on the 6-month T-bill topped 5% last week, something we haven't seen since 2007 right before the great financial crisis. Maybe that CPI report for January had something to do with it. The consumer price index for January showed a 6.4% rise from a year ago, strip out food and energy prices, and the core CPI jumped 5.6% from a year ago. Inflation is slowing, no doubt, but just too slowly to get the Fed to back off future rate hikes. Fed officials were on the media circuit last week, and several of them indicated that the Fed's terminal rate may be as high as 5.5% before it's all over. A 5.5% Fed funds rate changes the equation for all sorts of financial instruments, especially stocks. First of all, it makes government bonds even more attractive. Given all the uncertainty out there around the pace of economic growth, a 5.5% return on a U.S.-backed T-bill looks kind of attractive right now to those investors in search of stability and downside protection. But it also changes the equation for U.S. businesses and consumers who are paying higher and higher interest rates to borrow money. And that leads us right into our big three, For the week. Number one. Hey, big spenders. (music) U.S. consumer debt hit a fresh record at the end of 2022 and delinquency rates rose across several types of loans, according to the New York Federal Reserve. Debt across all categories totaled $16.9 trillion, up $1.3 trillion from a year ago and at a record high. Even though very few borrowers were taking out new mortgages or refinancing old ones, mortgage balances increased to $11.9 trillion, up about $250 billion from the third quarter and up about a trillion dollars from a year ago. Mortgage loans considered in serious delinquency of 90 days or more rose to a rate of about 0.57%. That's still pretty low, but it's nearly double where it was from a year ago. Auto loan debt delinquencies rose 0.6% to 2.2%, while credit card debt jumped 0.8% to 4%. Student loan debt, that also increased last month after staying flat during much of the pandemic amid government-backed amnesty for borrowers. That runs out on June 30th unless something changes. The total balance of student debt loans hit $1.6 trillion in the fourth quarter. Auto loan debt, that moved higher too to $1.55 trillion while credit card balances rose to just shy of $1 trillion. The average APR on credit cards is now 23.5%. That's the highest it's ever been. All of these loans are based in large part on the federal funds rate, and as the Fed keeps hiking rates, borrowers are getting stretched out. The U.S. government is, too, the biggest borrower out there. Total U.S. government debt now stands at $31.5 trillion, up from $29.6 trillion at the end of 2022. And number two, while prices for hard commodities like lumber, steel, and copper are well off their highs as demand has waned, given concerns around a recession, soft commodity prices are packing a pretty big punch these days. Orange juice futures recently broke out of a decade-long base, and they are rising. Coffee futures are also up 20% in a month, and cocoa hit a fresh 52-week high last week. There goes breakfast. Sugar futures are popping, too. Food inflation has been one of the stickiest areas of inflation for the past year, up more than 10% on an annual basis, and it doesn't look like it's slowing down at all. And number three. Even though U.S. stocks feel like they've kind of petered out lately, we can't ignore the volume thrusts we've seen in the S&P 500 since the market bottomed in October. Volume thrusts are not some kind of loud fencing move. They are metrics that track the percentage of stocks advancing and the volume of money flowing into those stocks. According to Sentiment Trader, since October, there have been a near record number of days with at least 80% of stocks advancing and at least 80% of volume flowing into those stocks. Bottoms with large clusters of 80% days like this preceded further gains in the months ahead every single time. Sentiment Trader says that since 1980, there were 38 instances of 80% or greater up issues and or up volume in the four months following a low. Looking at the four-month stretches following all 52-week lows in the S&P 500 since 1980, this recent rally ranks as the fourth most ever in terms of volume thrust since a market bottom. The only bottoms exceeding it were in 1982, 2012 and 2020. In the year following those signals, the S&P 500 returned 18.4%, 14% and 33% respectively. It doesn't mean it's gonna happen again this time around, but history is telling us to listen to the volume. It's also a signal that investors and traders really wanna believe the market will rally and any whiff of an uptrend gets followed by a lot of buying. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it'll be a shortened trading week as U.S. markets are closed on Monday for President's Day. Retail earnings will take center stage this week as we get close to the end of earnings season, and Walmart and Home Depot will lead the pack. Walmart, the largest retailer in the U.S. in terms of sales and one of the biggest worldwide, is expected to post its third consecutive quarter of earnings declines with profits falling 6% from a year ago and sales rising around 5% to just under $160 billion. It's the future, though, that we care about, so we're going to be listening closely to what these retailers have to say about inflation, the impact on its consumers, inventory levels, and projections for the rest of the year. Shares of Walmart are up a little over 3% so far this year, underperforming the broader market, which is up over 6%. Shares of Home Depot are flat so far this year. We're also going to get results from widely held and widely followed companies, including NVIDIA, Block, Moderna, Domino's Pizza, and Dr. Pepper Keurig. They should really just shorten that name, just saying. We'll also receive more updates on the housing market this week, including new and existing home sales for January. Existing home sales are projected to have actually rebounded last month to 4.1 million units. That's up from just 4 million in December. This would mark the first increase in sales since January of last year, when they totaled 6.49 million. New home sales are also projected to have risen slightly to 620,000, up from 616,000 in December. Home sales were likely boosted last month by falling mortgage rates, which fell from 20-year highs they hit late last year. The average rate on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage fell to 6.09% in early February after peaking above 7% in late October. We'll see if it stays there as the Fed prepares another quarter-point of a point interest rate hike next month. On Friday, the Bureau of Economic Analysis will release the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index for January. That's the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation because it measures more products and has a tighter timetable. The PCE price index is projected to have risen 0.3% last month, accelerating from a 0.1% gain in each of the previous two months. Prices likely increased 4.8% on an annual basis, down slightly from 5% in January, but still well north of the Fed's target of 2%. And that means more rate hikes are in order for March and possibly in May as well. Investors hate uncertainty. It's like kryptonite. It makes us feel weak when we can't see the future, and the future has been pretty cloudy lately. But there are signs that visibility is improving. We have a pretty good idea that the Fed will hike rates at least one more time this year. Inflation slowing, not quickly enough, but it's slowing on an annual basis. Fears of a recession are still out there, but very few people think it's going to be very deep or long-lasting if we have one or if we're already in one. Corporate earnings, pretty underwhelming as expected, and guidance isn't too strong either. So given all that, what are reasonable long-term investors like us supposed to do? We need some guidance. We need some perspective and we need some common sense. We need Liz Young, the chief investment strategist at SoFi. And as luck would have it, she's back aboard the Express this week to straighten us out. Welcome, Liz. Thank you good to be back. Good to have you. I read your blog and I listen to your podcast and I watch on TV all the time and you're still kind of bearish, yet individual investors seem to be coming out of the bear den, especially in the past month. Why are you reticent and what are some investors missing?
1: I'm cozy in the bear den. First of all, I think it's important to maybe try not to label yourself as a bear or a bull just because then you get sort of stuck in it. You dig in your heels and you refuse to be wrong. And I think there's a lot of people that have fallen victim to that. But What's happening right now is uncertainty is maybe lifting a little bit, but honestly only because it's been a while. We've made it a little bit further through the cycle. We know that we are probably closer to the end of a fed hiking cycle than to the beginning. So it feels like, okay, we've made it down the road. If we're running a marathon, maybe we're at mile 20, but we still have 6.2 to go. And that 6.2 could be Windy, it could be raining, it could be all uphill. And that's what we don't know yet. So it's really difficult at this point in the cycle to figure out where we're headed. I also think that investors are tired of being bearish. They're tired of being afraid. They're tired of worrying about the risks. And there's this big appetite to just be more optimistic. So people are sick of being pessimistic, and they're turning optimistic for that reason.
0: Yeah, fear of fatigue. And we all know by watching marathons, mile 20, that's when a lot of people tap out. That's when the body gives in, and then it's all about what you have left in the tank. But to your point... I think you're right. Don't label yourself bullish or bearish, but how confident are you? And we've seen the turn in the AAII sentiment survey, our own survey of individual investors that we do through our newsletters. People are a little less cautious, but they're not ready to jump back in. So it's maybe that fatigue fear that people are having right now. But look at the options market. I think you pointed this out recently. There's a lot of options activity lately. And a lot of it's by retail investors who may be chasing the gains they may have missed in January. That seems dangerous to me.
1: Well, I think the most dangerous thing in the options market is most of the activity. I think I saw a post the other day that 50% of the activity is in zero days to expiration options. You guys can look that up later and figure out what that means. But it's basically, you're going to buy an option today that expires today. And it's almost this desire for instant gratification. And if we don't know where to find upside elsewhere, if we're walking through a muddy forest and we're not sure what is on the other side, we're just kind of grasping at anything that in the short term might bring us satisfaction. I think that's what's happening. The risk is that, number one, what it does is it's subduing the VIX index. So it's giving us this sort of false idea that volatility is super low because the VIX tracks 30-day-out options. So if everybody's just buying zero-day-out options, the 30-day-out options aren't seeing activity, so the VIX looks really tired. The VIX looks really low and everything seems very calm when in reality, people are just losing money faster. It's a risky spot to be. I think that this desire for instant gratification, this desire for an instant answer is just an indication of where we are in the cycle.
0: Yeah, great points. Recession. We don't know if we're in one. We won't know if we're in one until we're already through it or we're in the middle of it. But does it even matter anymore? Are we measuring the right things? And if we are, you look at something like retail spending that came in super strong last month when we're supposed to be fatigued from inflation, fatigued from high cost. Inflation still at 6.4%, still above 6% here. But let's just say we are, or maybe we're going to be in one, but it's going to be for a minute or two. Does it even matter or is it just a personal thing? Because a lot of folks feel like they've been in a recession since 2020.
1: It matters. It definitely matters. But that's coming from the lens of a macro strategist. So it would be odd for me to say recession doesn't matter. You have to respect the business cycle. And this is why this is such a hot debate. There are a lot of signals out there that we would call leading indicators telling us that a recession is all but confirmed. Everything saying this is exactly what it looks like before a recession starts. There's even things In the market, like the bond market, the inverted yield curve at multiple points signaling that a recession is coming. But then there's maybe coincident or lagging indicators, so things are happening either right now or things that don't get hit until after the bad stuff starts, that are telling us the opposite. They're saying the consumer is still spending money, everything is fine, the labor market is strong. What I would caution people to not fall into is the trap of the fact that the consumer and the labor market are very closely linked. As long as people have a job, they're going to spend their money. And as long as they don't feel like layoffs are going to hurt them or their family, they're going to keep spending their money. A recession isn't real to a consumer until it happens in their house. And it just hasn't yet to everybody. I'm not confident that it's going to go through every single sector of the economy. It may not be terribly catastrophic, but it will start to hit other parts of the economy and it'll seem more real. And that's when you see a pullback in spending.
0: Yeah, so we're talking about spending. We know the Fed cares about personal consumption expenditures, mm-hmm. we know they care about household income and those things. But when you look at the recession indicators, the five or six that actually matter, what's flashing red right now and what's not flashing at all?
1: So one of them we actually just got today, we look at capacity utilization. It's a very manufacturing-based component. Basically, it was spiking and it had hit highs in 2022, and then it started on this downtrend and it kind of bounced around a little bit, but it's been contracting or falling since October of 2022. That reading, number one, the way to think about it is you rarely, if ever, have a recession when capacity utilization is rising. So once it rolls over and starts to fall and continues to fall... That's usually an indicator that things are slowing down. Manufacturing capacity either isn't necessary because demand isn't there. We don't have to make as many widgets. That's been happening since October. That one is definitely flashing red. When you think about some of the consumer expenditures, that stuff is still flashing pretty green. Manufacturing PMI is flashing red. That's in contraction territory. I mentioned already some of the yield curve stuff. That's flashing red. It's in inversion territory and has been there for a long time. Some of the other things that are happening, and this is you hit lows in these indicators right before they spike back up to highs, things like the personal savings rate is at a low right now. So people aren't saving as much money, which you might think, well, that means they're spending it. That's good. But it also means that they're not building up enough of a buffer. And then if we hit the skids in the economy, they're in trouble. Other things like the unemployment rate, I think all of us can agree it's good that people are employed, but the unemployment rate hits all-time lows right before it spikes up. To highs. So we're at sort of that teetering on the edge point right now.
0: Great point. And as we're spending more, or our savings rate is going down—it was coming down from pretty high highs, yep. given all the government money that went out. Yep. You, it's at the same time that interest rates are rising, and credit card APRs are at 19 percent, all-time yep. highs there. That's and right. we know folks have a lot of debt—five to six thousand dollars on average per borrower. So mm-hmm. that can be very tenuous. We want to keep an eye on that. Let's talk about investing and investors right now. You know this through your members at SoFi, and just by watching the markets as closely as you do, and I do too. A lot of people follow the crowd. Most people follow the crowd, especially retail investors. The most popular stocks in our investor surveys every eight weeks are always the most popular stocks. We ask people for their top 10 ETFs. They're the most popular ETFs. What is the danger, if any, in following the crowd the way that we've been following the crowd as retail investors for as long as I can remember?
1: There's a couple of things that come to mind, both of which you could easily look up on investopedia.com, I'm sure the first of which is called animal spirits. People sort of follow a herd of whatever it is, or you could even think of it as like a field of wheat. The wheat blows in one direction, everybody leans that way, and then it blows back. It's dangerous to be part of animal spirits, because sometimes you might be running with a herd, you don't even know what you're running towards, right? What are we doing? Are we running away from something? Are we running towards something? Where's everybody going? And I think a lot of times it's this sort of blind ambition that it's great that we're optimistic and that we think we might make money, but did we stop and figure out if we're doing this for the right reasons and if this is really a safe run to be on? And the other thing is you end up getting trapped in sort of a momentum behavior. And you can look up momentum. There's actually measurements of momentum that you can measure in the market of how strong it is or how weak it is. Momentum works. And this is why people say things like don't fight the trend. Momentum works until an inflection point. And if you are smart enough, I'm not, I know, to call the inflection point, then you're going to win every time if you're following momentum. But if you don't know when that inflection point is coming or you don't know what indicators to look at to figure out when that inflection point might be nearing then you can get really hurt by following the momentum crowd.
0: Yeah, and a lot of people did. And I'm one of them from last year too. When you don't see that sector rotation, when you don't really take the temperature of what's happening inside the markets and you just keep running because everyone's running and you're just looking at each other going, what are we doing? I don't know, we're running. That's what can lead to some pretty steep losses. But the whole point is, diversification, right? Mm -hmm. Looking around sectors and looking around the world. And let's talk about around the world right now. For the first time Mm -hmm. in a long time, Liz, the U.S. is underperforming a lot of global markets and a lot of global markets that seem to be having a lot of economic problems. Now, we know the economy and the stock markets are never the same. They're not the same, never will be. But sometimes they walk hand in hand together. Is this change in regime something that you think will be with us for a long time? Or is this just an anomaly right now as we get sorted out over the next year?
1: I think there's a lot of churn going on in the market on multiple levels, not just among things like value and growth, small cap and large cap, but also U.S. and international opportunities. Be careful not to look at performance, particularly with emerging market performance. Careful not to look at that and ignore some of the things that drive it. So, for example, if the dollar is weakening, emerging markets are going to do better. That just is what it is, right? And we had been in an environment where the dollar had gotten so strong, and then it did start to weaken towards the end of last year. That's going to support emerging market currencies, and that's going to be better for them. It doesn't necessarily mean that the countries got fundamentally healthier. It also doesn't mean that the stocks got fundamentally healthier, right? There are still a lot of reasons to be afraid of investing in China. There are still a lot of reasons to be afraid of investing in South America because their currencies are so volatile. But for short periods of time, those currency movements can make it look a lot more attractive. What I think the U.S. is up against that's a bigger wall than a lot of international markets is that the U.S. threw so much liquidity at this and threw so much support at it. Maybe, And that's a political conversation, right? Maybe to a fault, maybe a little bit more than was necessary. But we have to back out of a lot more of that than other countries do. And that's sort of the claim to success that some of them will say is that, well, we didn't spend that much in the first place, so we don't have to reverse it all. We do. The U.S. does. We have to reverse it all. We have to somehow lower a Fed balance sheet without breaking everything. And we have to take care of inflation without breaking everything. So we're up against probably a bit more of a challenge than a lot of international economies right now.
0: The dollar really is key. We tell people every week, watch what's happening with the dollar because that affects just about everything else from stocks to the performance of other countries to the performance of currencies. It is the big factor out there plus copper. All right, let's talk a little bit about strategic allocation. And I know you have a lot of younger members at SoFi, but you have members throughout the age scale there. So if you're gonna allocate today and you're in your 20s and 30s, let's say you're rebuilding or really starting that portfolio construction and you see the world the way it is today and the way things may go over the next few years, what do you do? Don't tell us what stocks to buy, but tell us how you set up a reasonable, strong foundation for allocating your money.
1: I'm going to set this up by saying, I just sat on a panel that was titled Tina No More. Tina stands for there is no alternative. It had referred to equities as being the only option. It was the only thing that would go up in a really low interest rate environment. And now there's this idea that there are alternatives. You can invest in bonds, you can do whatever else. If you are in your 20s and 30s, You have decades, even in your 40s and 50s, right? We live a lot longer now. And ladies, you outlive men. So you live very, very long. You need your money to last you a long time. But particularly if you're in your 20s and 30s, your primary goal is growth. There are three different things when you think about allocating a portfolio. One of them is growth. One of them is preservation. One of them is income. If you're young, you don't need the income. You need a little bit of preservation, but you mostly need growth. You're not going to get growth without equities. So it just has to be there, and it should still be the largest allocation in your portfolio. Now, it doesn't have to be 100%. doesn't even have to be 80% if you're scared, but it should be more than half, I would say. So keep that in mind. One of the things in the equity portfolio that I also think people need to kind of break themselves of the habit is that we've been so used to big cap tech or just tech in general leading the way for the last few years I don't think that that's going to be what leads us out of this part of the cycle. So invest in the boring stuff. Look at the other sectors that maybe aren't interesting to you. Maybe they're not as sexy. Some of the industrials out there, some of the big airlines, things like that, that over the long term, they should grow. Maybe not in the next six months, but invest in the boring stuff too.
0: Yeah, boring is beautiful and it's back And better than ever. (laughs) And uh, I can tell you just from the popularity of things like even CDs, folks looking for Mm -hmm. the best CDs or best high yield savings accounts or best dividend paying stocks or ETFs, you know that appetite is out there. I think people are going to be okay with reasonable returns because they know things have changed. Things have really changed, and we're not going to go back to the way things were when interest rates were zero and we were just throwing money at a problem, unless we have another big problem, and then we have another big problem to deal Mm -hmm. with. So we don't want to wish for things to go back. So again, you said you would take this strategy even if you were in your 40s and 50s, but if you were in that wind down period where growth may not be the flavor you want to have in your portfolio and you want to stabilize and protect, what do you recommend for the 50 and 60 year olds right now?
1: treasuries, short-term treasuries in particular. So when I say short-term, I mean two years and below. Yields are at a level right now that we have not seen in decades. And yields are basically what you can make if you held that security to maturity. So if you bought it right now, and even if we're not sure what happens over the next 24 months, and CDs are okay in this camp too, go lock it up in a CD where you're making a decent amount in return on that at whatever bank, shop it out, but go lock it up in a CD for two years. After two years, we'll have more clarity about whether or not the Fed's done, if they got it right or wrong. We'll have landed on something. And you can have probably a little more confidence at that point. So short-term treasuries, I think cash is still okay as long as you're earning some kind of yield on it. CDs are okay. If you're going to look at defensive parts of the equity market, I think consumer staples are a little overvalued here still. I would do something like utilities and healthcare outside of Staples as a defense, but always just keep in mind, this is for the long haul. This is not something that you're trying to call an inflection point in the next six to nine months for.
0: Right. It is a marathon and it's a journey. So 4% on a CD looks kind of beautiful right now, Mm -hmm. I got to say. All right. Biggest mistake an investor at any age can make right now, what would you say that is?
1: I think it goes back to the earlier part of our conversation. The biggest mistake is that you trade too much. You're trying to chase it. You're trying to catch the lowest point before you buy or the highest point before you sell, I can promise you that what you're waiting for is probably not going to arrive. If you're waiting to buy a stock when it hits $50, I bet it gets up to $49.91, you're never going to hit it on the head. So trying to time things is always going to be the biggest mistake. I think the other thing is, right now, what people are suffering of more than any other time I I can remember in my career is recency bias. It's almost as if, okay, what happened for the last 30 days is going to persist for the next six months. And that is not the case. We've seen multiple bear market rallies. We've seen multiple tops. We've seen multiple bottoms. I think it's safe to say that the only thing that's going to persist from here until we get to the end of this cycle is volatility.
0: Yeah, great point. All right. Give us your hot take, Liz, for 2023. What's nobody talking about that we need to be talking a lot more about?
1: Well, I don't know if nobody is talking about this, but we do talk a lot about the equity market. I actually think that there's a lot of risk in the credit market, the corporate credit market. I don't think we're talking enough about how tight spreads are. And what I mean by that is the difference between the yield on a corporate bond versus say the 10-year treasury. So there hasn't been a lot of stress that's hit the high yield market or the corporate credit market. I think that there is a pretty big risk for a credit event in 2023. So you've got rates that have risen, If you're a corporation and you have bonds outstanding, if they mature this year, you have to roll those bonds. You probably took those bonds out when rates were much lower, so your interest costs go up. I think there's probably some companies out there that can't meet that same level of interest cost and aren't necessarily budgeting it in. So that's what I would watch for 2023.
0: Yeah, folks, if you're worried about what happens in the equity market in a thousand point drop or six, seven percent drop in one of the stock markets, just wait until there's a credit event. Mm -hmm. You're going to realize that credit and debt run things around here. Stocks are sexy, but that's where the real money is, right? We ask you this every time you're on the show. We're going to ask you again because you always have a good one and you hit about seven or eight Investopedia (laughs) terms already. (laughs) So you're getting socks, you're getting the hoodie, you're getting everything. What's your term right now? The most important investing term in Liz Young's mind right now.
1: Business cycle. And just for everybody, I did not plan all those terms. They just sort of came out. It's just natural that you have to look that stuff up and know what it means. But right now, it's business cycle. And I put this in my 2023 outlook as a section. You have to respect the cycle. There's always an early part of the cycle, a mid part of the cycle, a late part, and then usually what follows is a recession. Most of the time, you can't make it from late back to early without a recession. Now, it doesn't mean that a recession has to be terrible. doesn't mean that it has to be long and drawn out. It is a natural part. And if you are less than 80 years old, you're likely to see more than one recession from here on out in your lifetime. I've already seen a few in mine, right? So a recession can be very healthy in the cycle to reset it. Particularly in this one, it would reset inflation. I am not in the soft landing camp. I find it very difficult to believe that we're going to make it through all of this without some sort of hard-ish landing. But I do believe that we came into this much better prepared than we have in prior recessions with really big profit margins and with a really tight labor market. It's very possible that we have a mild, short recession. We reset it and we move on with our lives.
0: Yeah, but it's a great term. And you always come to us with great terms. We so appreciate you. Liz Young, the chief investment strategist at SoFi. Follow her blog on SoFi. Follow her on the socials. And you have a terrific podcast. The important part, check that out as well. Thanks so much for being here. We love having you on the show. Thank you. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. You heard Liz Young's favorite term these days, the business cycle. And in case you don't know what that means, business cycles are comprised of concerted cyclical upswings and downswings in the broad measures of economic activity, output, employment, income, and sales. Those are key indicators that foretell a recession or an expansion. We're going to do a daily double this week and give you two terms for the price of one. And this week, our term suggestion comes from Mary j 25 on Instagram, who wants to learn more about shorting or what it means to short a stock or a security. We like that term because for all the bullish options activity that we talked about last week, there are more than a few popular stocks that are getting shorted lately by investors who just don't believe the hype. Well, according to my favorite website, a short or a short position is created when a trader sells a security first with the intention of repurchasing it or covering it later at a lower price. A trader may decide to short a security when she believes that the price of that security is likely to decrease in the future. There are two types of short positions, naked and covered. A naked short is when a trader sells a security without having possession of it. However, that practice is illegal in the United States for equities. A covered short is when a trader borrows the shares from a broker. In return, the trader pays a borrow rate during the time the short position is in place. When creating a short position, you have to understand that you have a finite potential to earn a profit and an infinite potential for losses. That's because the potential for a profit is limited to the stock's distance to zero. However, a stock could potentially rise for years and years on end, making a series of higher highs. And if that happens and you short that stock your losses can amplify. It's risky, so you better know what you're doing if you're going short. Read our guide on shorting on Investopedia before you take on this risky strategy. We're going to link to it in the show notes. According to S3 Partners, which track short positions in stocks, some of the most shorted stocks so far this year are also some of the top performers in terms of share price appreciation. Those include Carvana, the online car dealership. Shares are up 140% year to date. The online furniture shop Wayfair, where shares are up 60%, and electric vehicle company Lucid Group, which shares are up 57%. In those cases, it looks like the short sellers got squeezed, just like we saw with GameStop and AMC back in 2021. Great suggestion, Mary J. 25 We're going to be sending you some of our finest socks for picking this week's term. And a pro tip, they don't go great with shorts, but I guess that depends on who's wearing them. We're going to let Ernesta Procope take us out this week. Procope is often called the first black woman of Wall Street. She founded the E.J. Bauman Insurance Company in 1953 and made history becoming the first black-owned business to actually be on Wall Street. It became the largest minority-owned insurance company in the United States, and Procope paved the way for black entrepreneurs to build great businesses in the U.S. for decades to come. She was also a key player in revitalizing the Brooklyn, New York neighborhood of Bedford Stuyvesant in the 1970s and 80s by helping to pass the FAIR plan, the FAIR access to insurance requirements, the FAIR plan is a state mandated program that provides fair access to insurance for individuals who are having trouble insuring their property due to the fact that insurers consider them high risk. Here's Prokop in a 2013 interview explaining how and why she was able to get the nation's largest insurance companies to follow her lead and underwrite insurance in Bedford-Stuyvesant at a time that nobody wanted to invest in that neighborhood.
1: I thought it was time to educate people who didn't know anything about what black ownership was in Bedford-Stuyvesant and Crown Heights. For some strange reason, I have nerve. I had three older brothers, and I had to have a lot of nerve just to deal with them. So I guess I was transferring my expertise in dealing with them to dealing with men with whom I had to make contact to convince them that they should come to Bedford-Stuyvesant.
0: Procope passed away in 2021, but she left an undeniable legacy in the world of insurance and Black-owned businesses. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and thanks again to Liz Young for climbing back aboard the Express. We are always grateful for her common sense, and she always rings the Investopedia terms pages when she joins the show. Rate, review, and recommend us to a friend, and send us some feedback on our social media channels at Investopedia, or send us a note to podcast at investopedia.com check your show notes for all the reports we cited on this week's show and you'll find those wherever you get your express and on investopedia.com slash the express podcast and we'll talk again a little further on down the line